Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening world. I am Reverend Adrian L. Robinson II, a.k.a. Rev. Rob. And this is Deeper in the Word, where we give you the real about Scripture with people who actually know and understand it, so that you can get a better grasp of what certain things in the Bible mean, how they relate to your life and experience, and how you can apply something written so long ago to what you are going through right now. And today's show, my friends, is entitled, In Our Defense. In Our Defense. And we're going to be discussing today what it means to defend our faith. And we're going to be looking to the Word of God in order for us to get our instructions on the how and why we need to do so. Because defending the faith is the duty of anybody who calls themselves a follower or supporter of Christ and the Bible. Think about it. Let's say somebody was dragging your name through the mud in your community, your neighborhood where you live, telling a bunch of lies about you. Lies, using lies as alibi. They're telling lies about you, even telling a bunch of misconceptions about you. Things that ain't true, but which weren't necessarily said out of malice as to how a blatant and deliberate lie would be done, but which led toward people getting the wrong idea about you. In other words, they weren't deliberately trying to malign you or slander you, but they were still saying things about you that weren't true. Now, wouldn't you be ready to vehemently defend yourself against something like that? Like, you're not just going to sit back and let the blatant lies and the inadvertent misconceptions be said about you without defending yourself in some fashion, right? Imagine somebody getting charged with a murder that they didn't commit and then being like, oh, well, I guess I'm going to jail. Ain't nobody doing that. They're going to be like, look, I didn't do it, okay? I didn't do it. They're going to defend themselves because they know they're innocent. They know the truth. Friends, it's the exact same premise when it comes to defending our faith. When you hear people lying about what the Bible says or misquoting it or misrepresenting it or trying to claim that Jesus isn't real, trying to say that we believe in fairy tales and made up stories and we're dumb for doing so, it should compel you to want to defend your faith, to defend what you believe in. And one thing we have to realize is that this isn't a new phenomenon, y'all. Defending the faith isn't exclusive to believers today. It's been going on since the days of Jesus when his disciples still walked the earth. And when we talk about defending the faith, we're talking about making two separate types of defense. That being number one, defending what we believe to others who don't believe what we believe. And number two, defending what we believe against others, including other followers of Christ, other believers who dilute or misrepresent the faith instead of properly promoting it. So let's look at the first type of defense. That is defending what we believe to others who don't believe what we believe. And not only are we commanded to do that, but there's a way that we're commanded to do that. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. 
always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. What Peter is saying here is that we need to know what we believe and be prepared to respectfully explain our faith and the hope that we have in Jesus. And there's two parts to this that I want to point out. The first part relates to how we, quote, respectfully explain the gospel. Notice what Peter said. He said, do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, when we defend the gospel, we don't need to be smart alecks about it. We don't need to be acting like know-it-alls as we do so. You don't explain the truth to the Bible with a smarmy, I told you so type of attitude as people begin to grasp its truth. You don't act like you're better than others because you know and understand the contents of the Bible in a way that they don't. But don't forget, that used to be you before you got saved and before you started learning the Bible for yourself. Don't act like you didn't came too far yet. Have y'all heard the old adage, you attract more flies with honey than with vinegar? Well, that's what that means. That it's easier to attract people to what you have to say if you say it with a pleasant disposition and undertone. In other words, sweet like honey. Than if you say it with an arrogant, self-absorbed, or wise guy attitude and tendency. Bitter like vinegar. And the other aspect of 1 Peter chapter 3.15 that I want to discuss relates to the hope that we have in Jesus. Note how the text says, to give an account for the hope that is in you. Peter says this because our faith isn't just about philosophical ideas. It's more so about hope. And so somebody might say, well, hope about what exactly? Friends, the message of the gospel is about the hope of how people can discover a loving relationship with God who made everything that exists, an all-powerful God, who is the creator of all things. You can have a relationship with that God. Point blank, the entire message of the gospel of Christ hinges on believing that Jesus is who he said he was, which is God in the flesh, and that he died, was buried, and resurrected back to life on the third day. And how he did all of this so that we could all be reconciled back to God because we were enemies of God prior to Christ's selfless sacrifices. And the entire faith of Christianity is steeped in the truth that Christ died and lives again. Because if that ain't true, if that's just a made up fairy tale from history, then everything else about being a follower of Christ is just one big lie and a complete joke, and everything we believe in is based on a false premise. And we've talked about all the reasons why we should believe in the gospel of Christ on this show before. Go back to season one, episode six, entitled, Give Me the Reasons. So we're not going to rehash all those arguments here, but we do encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. Because that entire show provides example after example of the proof that currently exists regarding the resurrection of Christ. And that proof is what creates the foundation for us as his followers to have hope in him. So that's the first type of defense. 
Now let's look at the second type of defense we mentioned, and that's defending what we believe against others, including other followers of Christ, other believers, who dilute or misrepresent the faith instead of properly promoting it. And for that, we look to another passage of biblical scripture, and that's in the book of Jude. Now the book of Jude, which is the next to last book of the Bible, is one of the shortest books in the Bible. It's only got 25 verses in it total. And in verse 3, Jude tells us to, quote, contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time handed down to the saints. And Jude's warning refers primarily to people who claim to be believers, but who weaken the faith instead of defending it. So he was writing this letter to other believers, to other followers of Christ. And as Jude says in his letter, when he started writing the letter, his purpose was to write about the, quote, common salvation that they all shared, which is the salvation in Christ that all people, all saved people enjoy, including us today. But then notice how he said as he began to write the letter, the Holy Spirit instead compelled him to appeal to his readers earnestly to, quote, contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints, or as one translation puts it, to put up a real fight for the faith which has been once for all committed to those who belong to Christ. Jude was reminding his fellow believers that it's all of our responsibility to defend the faith in these days of apostasy and decline that we're living in. And apostasy is basically a word which means when somebody abandons or renounces a religious belief. In this case, they used to believe in Christ, but somewhere along the way they abandoned or renounced that belief. So Jude is telling us in verse 3 that we're not only supposed to rejoice in and enjoy the blessings of the gospel and to spread and disseminate the good news so that other people can be saved, but that we're also supposed to contend for it or defend it. In other words, you only defend something that is being attacked. Remember what we said earlier about defending your reputation if people were lying on you or defending your truth if somebody falsely accused you of murder? And back in Jude's day, which was the year 8066 when he wrote this letter, having faith in Christ was definitely being attacked. But that's not happening today, right? We're not getting attacked today, right? <laughs> Come on now. It's also true today. And while we outlined previously how Peter said we should defend the faith against those on the outside of the church who attack it, Jude is reminding us about those on the inside of the church who are attacking it. The false teachers who come into the fold and attempt to poison the minds of true believers. Now the book of Acts puts it this way in chapter 20 verse 29. It calls them, quote, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. Wolves in sheep's clothing, basically. These are the people in the church doing the work of the enemy. Look at how Paul describes them in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15. These people are false apostles. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I am not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. Friends, this is why we have that dual duty to defend our faith. Defend it against people who don't know it 
and the people who know it but use it for wrongful purposes. Because when they do that, they misrepresent Christ and what he stood for and what he died for. Don't let Christ have died in vain. You know what I'm saying? Now, coming up in our next segment, we want to look more closely at what it means to defend our faith. Because even though we hinted at the reasons here based on what the Apostle Peter wrote and what Jude wrote, we also need to be more clear as to what our compulsion should be to stand up for what we believe in. So come back and find out just exactly what we mean by that after we come back from the break. What's up, y'all? It's your man's Rev Rob and friends. I am beyond excited to announce that Benevolent Faith Ministries now has our own mobile app. Yes, indeed. Now you can download our brand new app and take us with you wherever you go. Simply go to the Android store or the Apple store and type in Benevolent Faith Ministries and you'll be able to download our app right to your phone, tablet, laptop, or other mobile device. The app features all of our ministries and you can watch our online services there on Tuesday night as well as our Wednesday TV show, Walk in the Word, and you can peruse our video library and watch all of our previous online services and Bible studies and more. You can even listen to this podcast through the app. You can also request prayer through the app, access our Facebook and other social media pages, and you can also give to our giving partnerships through the app. Now, here's the shouting part. You can also access our brand new television station or BFTV, Benevolent Faith Television, which is available on Apple TV, Roku TV, and Amazon Fire TV. Also, sign up for notifications from Benevolent Faith by going to the settings tab and under notifications, sliding the button to the on mode so that you can get alerts from us from us that will pop up on your phone anytime we have new developments and trust me we will not spam your phone with notifications i can't stand when apps do that that's not what we're about listen this is a game changer for us as we seek to truly embody what it means to be a global virtual church and we're thrilled to be able to share this with you download the benevolent faith ministries app today At Benevolent Faith Ministries, we're a virtual church with a real heart for God. Visit us on the web today at BenevolentFaithMinistries.org and learn more about becoming a member, participating in our giving partnerships, and learning how you can be the church without the need of any building. That's BenevolentFaithMinistries.org. Log on today. Hey, welcome back to Deeper in the Word. As a reminder, you can subscribe and listen to us on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, Overcast, on Apple Podcasts, in the iTunes Store, and yes, on iHeartRadio. Also, don't forget to email us at info at benevolentfaithministries.org to send us your questions and comments for the show or just to be like, hey, how you doing? And remember, we want you to join us every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central, 4 p.m. Pacific Time 
for our online church services. Just go to benevolentfaithministries.online.church and create a screen nickname so you can chat along with us during the service. Also, check out our TV show, Walk in the Word with Benevolent Faith Ministries that airs every Wednesday afternoon at 2.30 p.m. Eastern, 1.30 p.m. Central, 11.30 a.m. Pacific Time on the Daily Gospel Network. And you can catch the show on all streaming platforms everywhere, including Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire TV. Or you can watch it online by going to www.dailygospelnetwork.tv. And make sure y'all go download our brand new mobile app available in the Apple and iTunes stores right now. You'll find all of our ministries in the app, including links to this podcast, as well as links to our Tuesday night online service. And you can watch our TV show that I just mentioned in the app as well. You can also request prayer. You can donate to our giving partnerships and much, much more. So download that app today. We're really excited about that app. But today, friends, today's show is entitled In Our Defense. And we're discussing the biblical ideology behind defending what we believe in or defending our faith in Christ and in the Bible. And we've been laying out a definition for what defending our faith means in accordance with two passages of Scripture, namely the book of Jude and 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And we're expected to defend what we believe, not only to demonstrate to the world the truth of Christianity, but more importantly, to keep our faith strong. Now, there's even a name for this type of discipline. It's called apologetics. In too many churches today, y'all, folks get far too wrapped up in things that ultimately don't matter in the kingdom. Like, well, what color should the carpet in the sanctuary be? Or what type of chairs or benches should we have in the pews? Or who should be the church landscaper? Let's go with that company because I don't like that company. Or people should wear this to service. That's not appropriate to wear. Or the choir should be singing these type of songs and hymns. We don't need to singing this modern contemporary stuff. Yada, yada, yada. Listen, none of that stuff matters as much as how we should be standing up for what we believe in and how we should be training people to learn how to do that for themselves. Engaging in apologetics means defending the whole body of revealed truth that's contained in the whole of the inspired canon of scripture, which is the word of God. It means defending the whole Bible, all of it. And this is what the apostle Paul was trying to tell the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter one, verse seven, when he said that they share with him the special favor of God in quote, defending and confirming the truth of the good news. The Greek word, translated defense is apologia, from which we derive the word apologetics. And it's a legal term, meaning the case made by a defense attorney on behalf of a defendant under attack by a prosecutor. See that? So Paul is basically saying that me and you got to be ready to give an apologetic for the gospel. That is to make a logical and systematic, and sometimes even scientific, if we need to do so, defense of the gospel against all the attacks of its adversaries. And y'all, as we keep saying, 
these attacks are very, very real. A lot of the religious teaching in our schools and in the media is a direct denial of the truth of God as revealed in his word. And this denial has infiltrated into most churches, uh, most Christian denominational colleges and into many church pulpits and into much of what we consider so-called Christian literature these days. That's why we need to stand up for the truth because there's so many different platforms and places out here that's not promoting the Bible. They're promoting their own definition of it. Well, this is what Paul meant to say. This is what the Bible meant by that. Or they're cherry picking parts of scripture to say, well, this applies to us, not applying the, the whole of scripture. I mean, why should we stand by silently while our precious faith is being criticized and lied about and changed to adapt to people with agendas when the people who are supposed to be our spiritual leaders are trying to rob the faith of its supernatural origin, they're trying to rob it of its power, they're trying to rob it of its glory by injecting their own opinions and attitudes about what the gospel means instead of relying on what the Bible says it means. We got a duty, y'all, to stand up and defend what we believe in. Look at what Psalm 11 verse 3 says. The foundations of law and order have collapsed. What can the righteous do? In other words, if we don't defend the faith, then who gonna do it? Now, as we're discussing what it means to defend our faith, let's also define what it doesn't mean. And here's one thing that I wanna stress to all believers everywhere. A belief that those outside of the faith have as being applicable towards us. And that's the idea that defending the faith is not imposing our beliefs upon others. See, followers of Christ are frequently accused of trying to impose our values and our beliefs on other people. And the accusation we hear most often is that believers are trying to quote, shove our religion down people's throats. You hear that all the time about Christians. Y'all just trying to make people think what y'all want them to think. Y'all trying to shove that stuff down our throats. But think about it. That implies that believers have some type of authority that seeks to impose upon the rights of others. I mean, true indeed. There have been those throughout history who have used the faith to bring other people under subjection. I mean, the American slave trade comes to mind. Don't even get me started. We get a whole show on that as well. But the very nature of Christ dictates that his true followers never seek to infringe on anyone's basic human rights. The same God who granted a free will to the believer, he also granted it to the unbeliever. God is not a part, God doesn't have partiality. Scripture said God is not a respecter of persons. Meaning God don't show favoritism. Okay, but then some people try to think that followers of Christ are, quote, legislating morality. They're like, man, y'all just trying to tell people how they should live. But really, in many instances, everybody who believes something is trying to impose their brand of morality on others because every law, quote, imposes someone's moral values on someone else. Think about it. 
If you got a law that prohibits murder, for example, that law imposes a belief that murder is wrong. But that just so happens to uphold the Christian ideology that human life has inherent worth. You see what I'm saying? Like just about everybody agrees that murder, adultery, stealing, lying, and greed, just about everybody agrees that those things are wrong whether they're a Christian or not. And just about everybody agrees that respecting your parents is the right thing to do. Most people don't go around saying, yeah, it's cool to call your mom all type of names and to disrespect your mom and your daddy. So we agree. Everybody agrees that those things are wrong and that you shouldn't do them. And yet every one of those things I just named, murder, adultery, stealing, lying, greed, respecting your print, your parents, every one of those things in votes of sense of right and wrong that is woven into the fabric of our society and reflected in six of the Bible's 10 commandments. Think about that. So if you think believers are, quote, imposing their values on others, then maybe we should work to repeal the laws against murder, against perjury, and against death. I mean, listen, the reality is followers of Christ don't want to impose our values on other people, but we do recognize that in every society, somebody's values have to reign supreme. You can't have a society without values because what happens is you have anarchy and nobody listens to anything. You gotta have some type of law and order, right? So at that point, the question becomes, whose values do you want to predominate? Ain't no such thing as a neutral value system, y'all. Either things are good or they're bad, period. Therefore, followers of Christ are simply working to advance his values in the world because we believe that in a world of competing convictions, Christ's values best promote the general welfare and preserve the human tranquility. We're just saying, we gotta have a system of values that's always gonna be right or wrong, good and bad. We just so happen to follow the value system that Christ promoted. What's wrong with that? We gotta have a value system, right? So what's so wrong with us wanting to have his value system? We're not trying to impose our values on others, but we do see the importance of having an authority higher than ourselves. Because let's be real, any societies that attempt to produce a moral code that's based solely on human rationale, that can be manipulated by whoever has the most votes or the most weapons. You see that? When you have a value system that's based on what a person thinks, there's going to be conflict and there's going to be corruption. Hitler. Stalin or any other tyrant throughout history has proven this, that the exclusion of Christ's principles leads to less freedom, not more. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, except the absolute power of Christ, who was without blemish or corruption in any way. Doesn't that make sense? Saints of God, there's no doubt that when followers of Christ share the joy that comes from having faith in him, other people see that as an attempt to impose our beliefs upon them. But the truth is that as his followers, we know that we have the antidote for human misery in this life 
and an antidote for eternity in hell in the next life. Therefore, for us not to share that cure with others, as we are commanded by Christ to do in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, for us not to do that would be like knowing the cure for cancer, but refusing to share it with the rest of the world. How greedy and selfish is that? I mean, the entire premise of the Great Commission, as we see it, and again, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Christ told us to go out into the world and make disciples and baptize them and teach them everything he commanded. That's the entire premise of the Great Commission. Go out and tell people about how they can be saved through a faith in me. Don't keep it to yourself. Go to the corners of the earth and let everybody know because truly, we can't force our beliefs on anybody. All we can do is offer them the cure and pray that they accept it. And if some people see that as imposing our beliefs on them, well, that's just a matter of their perception. That's not a reflection of reality, I'm sorry. In other words, that's their problem, that's not ours. Now, coming up in our last segment, we wanna briefly look at how we go about defending our faith. Like what are the practical ways we go about standing up for what we believe in? Well, we're gonna find out after we come back from the break. What's up, friends? It's your man's Rev Rob, and I am excited to cordially invite you to catch all new episodes of our television show, Walk in the Word with Benevolent Faith Ministries, which airs on the Daily Gospel Network every Wednesday afternoon at 2.30 p.m. Eastern, 1.30 p.m. Central, 11.30 a.m. Pacific Time. That's also prime time for our friends in Africa and Europe. And y'all should know by now how we do this is not your typical ministry show. You can watch the show on Apple TV, Roku TV, and Amazon Fire TV, or you can just go to www.thedailygospelnetwork.tv and watch us there. Come on out and walk in the Word with us and learn the truth about God's Word, but in a fun and exciting new way. Amen? And we can't wait for you to join us. What's up, y'all? This is Rev. Rob, and I'm inviting you to join us live for our weekly online services every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central, 4 p.m. Pacific. All you have to do is log on at benevolentfaithministries.online.church, and it'll take you directly to the live worship session. Now, if you get there a bit early before service is started, stay and enjoy the fellowship with us and others through the chat system. You can even participate live and chat with our hosts during and throughout the service, as well as take notes and follow along in the Bible section we have available. And you can request prayer or even join Benevolent Faith Ministries itself. Remember, you can log on at benevolentfaithministries.online.church every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, and we can't wait for you to worship with us. Hey, welcome back to Deeper in the Word. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook. Just go to that search box and put in at Benevolent Faith Ministries and like our page to support us. And don't forget you can join us every Monday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern during our live prayer call line. And if you can't make the live call, you can call the prayer playback line, which is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in order to hear what you may have missed 
And for all those folks saying, well, how come I never can get to the prayer line? I don't even know what the call-in number is. Go to our Facebook page. It's posted right at the top of the page. Amen? Friends, in today's episode, In Our Defense, we've been discussing the idea of defending the gospel or defending what we believe, which is mandated by 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, and by the book of Jude. And we've discussed what defending the faith means, as well as discussed why it's so necessary. And so in our final segment today, as we normally do in our final segments, we want to walk through the practical steps necessary in order to defend our faith. In other words, we've defined it and answered the questions of why. Now we want to answer the question of how. How do we properly and most effectively defend our faith? Well, one way that we earnestly defend the faith is by living it. Truly, there's no greater defense of the faith than a life that proves the reality and beauty of having Christ-likeness. In other words, when we live our lives in a way that honors Christ, then we go a long way towards defending what we believe in. Because look, think about it. If you say you love the Lord, then you're going to do what he says and you're going to act like he acted. And people are going to see that. Because if you live in a way that's contrary to how Jesus talked and how he acted, people are going to see that too. So that's one way you defend it. It's because you live it out. That shows that you believe in it. We also defend our faith by suffering for it. And really, that's something that even the most hardcore believers are often unwilling to do. But it's just a fact, y'all. We gotta be willing to suffer. And there's a millions of people today who are suffering rather than allowing the faith to suffer. We gotta suffer. Don't let the faith suffer. The Bible is filled with stories of men and women who suffered for the sake of Christ and we shouldn't be any different. Like, how are people all throughout history going to suffer for the sake of the Lord and then we get to today and we think that we're not supposed to? What makes us better than them? In a lot of ways, they lived in ways that were much better, much more wholesome than the way we live. So if they suffered, what makes us think that we're not going to suffer or that we shouldn't suffer? We should be prepared for that. Also, we defend our faith by proclaiming it. Friends, arguably the best way to defend the, defend the gospel is by passing it on. And there's an old sports cliche that's probably really applicable in this instance. And that's that the best defense is a good offense. You know what that means? That means that the most effective way to defend what we believe in is to go on the attack ourselves against those who attack it, go on the offensive. Going on the offensive with the gospel means to be proactive in speaking about it, in promoting it, and in spreading it. See, defending the faith, while that's crucially important and necessary, is only as good and effective as the discipling of others that takes place within that defense. Because the gospel is only validated and defended by changed lives. It's spread through love and example and community. So in other words, 
You want to pass on the gospel because people's lives can become changed by it. And ain't no better way to defend the faith than to see somebody who went from being trifling to being a devout, avid follower. That's defending the faith. How can anybody speak against that? That's one of the things that kill me about people that speak against uh, faith in Christ. So many people's lives have been changed. Murderers, adulterers, liars. They came to the knowledge of who Christ was and did a complete 180 and turned their lives around. You can't fake testimony. When somebody says, oh, the Lord saved my mama from cancer. You can't fake that. Either it happened or it didn't. And so that is a changed life. So you can't fake testimony and you can't not defend the gospel by seeing people with their lives changed. It's just those things go hand in hand. Friends, the backbone of faith in Christ, we find it in the church. It's the people of God knowing and believing and teaching and obeying the truth about God that supports the very body of truth. Now, of course, Jesus is the truth. and He is the cornerstone. And yet his church is the embodiment of the truth. Like we are the hands and feet of Christ. So when we go out and act like him and do things that he told us to do, we're basically embodying the truth that he spoke about. Therefore, defending the gospel and defending the church are almost synonymous for us. They go hand in hand. And y'all have probably heard this illustration before, but I'm about to use about knowing and defending the truth, but I'm gonna use it anyway. Basically, this illustration says that the best way to recognize counterfeit money is by familiarizing yourself with real money. You can tell the fake because you be around real money all the time. And of course, that's true. But that illustration doesn't address how we go about responding to and counteracting those counterfeit measures. In other words, if you want to combat counterfeiting, then you got to print more real money. You got to use better ink that can't be counterfeited so easily so that people can be like, oh, that's that fake ink. You got to use better, more advanced printing methods that can't be duplicated so easily so that people can be like, nah, that wasn't printed using real money printing method. That's the fake method. You got to build and manage better detection equipment so that you can run it through there and it'd be like, eh, 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 that ain't real money. And you got to educate banks and businesses about how they can more effectively train cashiers and tellers to spot and identify authentic currency. Every last one of those things I just said about combating counterfeit money, in other words, every last one of those things I said is going on the offensive. It's being proactive. You beat the criminal to the punch. Say to God, the truth is that you can't have doctrine without disciples. You don't get truth without trainees. You feel me? There is no Christian doctrine or practice without living, breathing folks who follow the doctrine and practice of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Does that make sense, y'all? You can't have a faith in Christ without people who are actually doing it and living it out so you can point to them and say, that's how you do it. 
You got to have examples. Jesus didn't commission us to simply know and defend his teaching in a university or a Bible class or any other institution. But he also didn't command us to shepherd it as a historical artifact. That's just this monolith that sits over here on the side. No, he called us to preserve his teaching by passing it on. Remember, Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples. That is a direct command to pass on what I taught to y'all. Through the living foundation of disciples who are taught to obey every word. That is the foundation. Pass it on. That's the best way to defend the faith, y'all. That's the best and most effective way. By passing it on, by making disciples, by living it out ourselves so that other people can see what it is. Y'all, that's the best and most effective way to, quote, stand up in our defense. Amen? Listen, thanks for joining us. Don't forget, you can subscribe and listen to us on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, Overcast, on Apple Podcasts in the iTunes Store, and on iHeartRadio. Also, don't forget, you can find us on the web at benevolentfaithministries.org. Log on now and learn more about our giving partnerships and how you can be the church without the need for any building. And don't forget to log on this and every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern for our online church services at benevolentfaithministries.online.church. And yes, don't forget, go download the new Benevolent Faith Ministries mobile app today because it's available in all Apple and Android stores everywhere right now. Amen. And we'll catch y'all here next time. Holla.